Fixoplasm episode 85, The Sundial by Shirley Jackson. So, The Sundial is the only Shirley Jackson book I've read so far. The Haunting of Hill House is probably the most obvious title, um, not least thanks to the Netflix series, although um, I understand that's only loosely based on the book, and I haven't watched it. But anyway, the, the edition I've got of The Sundial is the Penguin Norton Classics version, and it's got this really great forward by Victor Laval, where... As well as a short anecdote about how he discovered his wife through a shared ghostly experience, he talks about the Sundial's similarities with both The Haunting of Hill House and her last novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. So the similarity with the former is the sprawling estate, and the latter is the sort of crumbling family dynasty. But on top of that, Lavelle says that this particular book stands out because it's really funny. I mean, it's, it's bleak and it's black. And dry humour, um, but it's hilarious as well. But the other things to consider in this book are also the apocalyptic elements, um, both the prophetic elements and the way that the matriarch Oriana Halloran has basically assembled a cult around her and how she manipulates everyone into remaining part of her assembly. Now, before we dive into it, the last point I want to make is this is a 1958 novel set in America, but because it fits so many of the Gothic tropes, I had to keep reminding myself that it wasn't actually taking place 50 years earlier in another country. And that's part of the allure, I think, because the only constants are the house and the nearby village and the characters inside. More than once, we question the reality of what lies outside the estate's walls, as if both time and geography are pretty much irrelevant, certainly not absolutes. Anyway... As per the usual format, I'm going to give a bit of a synopsis, then I'll make some remarks about role-playing, and then finally cover a bit of further media. So, here we go. So, the summary is the, the residents of Halloran House have gathered for the funeral of Lionel Halloran, the previous master of the house, and we have an ensemble cast of characters who snipe at each other and initially were expected to believe that this will be a sort of murder mystery, when suddenly things take a very different turn with this prophecy that the, uh, the world is about to end and only the people inside the house will be spared, and this premise then steers the plot through the remainder of the novel. So the characters are divided into three groups, and the first one is the household, uh, and that is um, Oriana Halloran, uh, referred to in the text as Mrs. Halloran. And Oriana is Lionel's mother, wife to Richard Halloran, and grandmother to Fancy. Mary Jane is the uh, widowed wife of Lionel, one of the background characters, and uh, complains of various illnesses, uh, which may or may not be in imagined. Richard is a husband to Ariana and father to Lionel, and apparently he's infirm and suffering dementia. Then we have Aunt Fanny of Francis Halloran, who is Richard's sister, a maiden aunt, and possibly a psychic? Not sure. Um, Fancy is the daughter of Lionel and Mary Jane, and is seemingly spoilt, but at the same time, she's also kind of resentful of her own lack of agency. And so... Even even with this sort of awful brat, we have a certain amount of sympathy. Then uh, a couple of other characters. Um, Essex is an archivist, or I'm not sure if he's an archivist or a librarian. Um, he's like this, this foppish, poetic type, possibly a kept man of Oriana, but an employee of the estate who's, who lives in. Miss Ogilvy is Fancy's governess, and... Um, then I suppose we ought to mention Mr. Halloran, who is, or more specifically, the ghost of Mr. Halloran, um, the father of Fanny and Richard. 
There's a couple of other characters we should mention, which are the visitors then, and, and they become drawn into the story a little way into the novel. Um, there's Mrs. Willow and her daughters, Julia and Arabella. There's Gloria, who's a daughter of Oriana's cousin. And there's Harry, the stranger, who they, they just seem to pick him up in town on a whim, partly because they need a second male around the house because the predominant cast is female. The other two characters that we should mention, though, uh, are not human. They are the sundial and the wider Halloran house and estate. So the sundial itself always seems slightly out of place, you know, offset to one side in what should be a, a symmetrical vista. It's also frequently the focus of weirdness and the, um, and the supernatural and disaster in general. Sometimes it's just in view. I mean, if we were thinking of, if this were filmed, then you'd always expect that the sundial is going to be off in the distance, possibly out of focus, but providing an air of menace. Um, and it has this cryptic quotation on it, which which is, what is this world? And according to Wikipedia, that's from Chaucer, the Night's Tale, I think. Um, the wider estate is significant because it's an ecosystem of its own. It has little grottos and mazes and the sundial and even a, a facsimile of the original apartment that um, the... Mr. Halloran Sr. occupied before founding the house. It's, this this apartment is tucked away somewhere in a large room on the third floor in the East Wing, I think, and it's, it's hardly ever visited by anybody. I think only Aunt Fanny knows of its existence. Um, and the most significant thing about the estate, part of, apart from all of its little hidden places, is its boundary. So thinking about the novel structure, the hook is basically, after Lionel's death, Oriana is now the rightful heir to the estate, and she starts declaring how things are going to change under her rule. You know, several people are going to be sent away, Essex is going to be dispensed with, Miss Ogilvy is going to be gone, Aunt Fanny will be permitted to stay, and Fancy will inherit, finally. Mary Jane, in the meantime, has been coaching Fancy to say that her grandmother killed her father by pushing him down the stairs. Nothing really comes of this, but obviously the hook the, the hook is that um, we're supposed to imagine this as yet another murder mystery, and therefore the mystery of who killed Lionel Halloran will be revealed in the end. Uh, spoiler, it isn't. And in any case, this murder mystery is swiftly overshadowed by Aunt Fanny's sudden supernatural experience. You know, she, she's basically taking a walk early in the morning, not exactly sure why, whether she's been, she's restless or being called out there and she finds herself lost and has what can only be described as a ghostly encounter, which she believes is with her father. That's the first of several encounters which is experienced by the group as a whole. And her late father basically tells her that the world is about to end and everyone in the house will be spared and everything outside the house will be utterly destroyed. So then in the rising action, you know, the, the characters gradually come to terms with and come to believe in the coming apocalypse. They gradually acquire more members, uh, the aforementioned Mrs. Willow and daughters, Gloria, Harry. And they gradually begin to transform the estate into a place that's suitable to survive in at the end. And they do this by utterly trashing the house, burning all the books to clear the shelves from the library for foodstuffs. Um, they also patronise the village as a sort of a, a last gesture of support and remembrance. Towards the end, they also um, have a party for all of the villagers. The other thing that happens is they become more superstitious through both... Um, I suppose I call them both external and internal influences to the group. 
Now, the external influences are they're kind of affected by a number of omens. Now, Aunt Fanny's visitations by her father, the accompanying prophecies, you know, visions of snakes, shattered windows, a doll that's supposed to symbolise Oriana, uh, it stuck with pins, appears just put on the sundial at some point. Uh, so those are the external influences. Those, those are the weirdness that is put upon the party. But then we have, like, internal um, prophetic stuff that happens. They decide to deliberately probe into the future by means of various techniques of divination. Now, Aunt Fanny had the original visions, and although this is what's kicked everything off, Aunt Fanny has always behaved strangely, and this has you know, kicked things up a notch for her. But they caught young Gloria, she's the, you know, the daughter of Oriana's cousin, uh, who's come to stay at, at a moment's notice, and they, they caught Gloria into doing some divination using oil on a mirror surface. The strange thing is Gloria's divination is curiously both accurate and repeatable. Uh, you know, by, by which I mean accurate because she can recall certain details such as Essex's birthmark and what people will be wearing on particular days in the future. And these things come true. Um, and it's also repeatable because the group can seemingly go back and forward in time via Gloria's vision to pinpoint the date of the apocalypse. This does actually seem to take a toll on Gloria as well, and, and in one of her last viewings, when they identified the precise date of the end of the world, she claims the vision has burned her eyes. Now, the other notable thing in this rising action is that some of the characters conspire with each other. There's a certain amount of dissent amongst the group. Uh, Julia specifically conspires with Harry to leave for the city. Oriana was appearing to support their venture, manipulates them both, uh, so that the trip actually fails. Harry never turns up. Julia ends up going off on her own on a, on a nightmarish taxi ride, um, almost certainly because the, you know, the Oriana knows the taxi driver and she's manipulated events to give Julia a scare. Um, but that scene is notable partly because it's the furthest we get outside the estate in the village. And the, the narrative stops at the fog bank, which, you know, according to the driver, he says, oh, yes, there's this foggy valley that you have to go through to get to the city. We never get past that. So, again, everything's relative and everything's taken on trust that there is a world outside this world. There is also a minor aside when the house is visited by another cult known as the True Believers, who believe in a wholly different kind of end of the world, where the faithful will be whisked off to Saturn to live in paradise. And this isn't really of much consequence, except to underline the absurdity of the Hloran estate believing um, one apocalyptic event and rejecting a completely different one. It's mostly played for comic relief. Anyway, the, the climax, as mentioned was you know, the, the last of Gloria's visions into the mirror reveal that the end will come on August the 30th. And this is horrible for Gloria. You know, she appears to be physically harmed by looking into the future. But as a result, Oriana chooses to hold a farewell party on the 29th under the premise of her and Richard's golden wedding anniversary. This turns out to be a complete debauch with the villagers intoxicated by food and wine. They have a barbecue. There's um, lots and lots of strange side conversations going on. I mean, it, it the way it's written is very nice as well. It feels like a party atmosphere where everybody's a bit too intoxicated and yet it's got this undercurrent of menace. Um, it does also elicit some odd behaviour in the cast. For example, Essex goes around spreading completely untrue rumours about the other characters right at the end. And you've got to wonder why is he doing that? Well, possibly because he'll never get that opportunity again because everybody else is going to be dead. 
Now, in the final sequence, Orianne has fully assumed the identity of the cult leader and has begun to make demands of the others. She's drafted a set of rules that need to be followed on and after the last day, which include what to eat and what to touch in the new world, and who will breed with whom. And she's also started wearing a crown, which makes her faintly ridiculous to the rest of the group, but she still has like, this, this air of menace and otherworldly charisma. Now, we never really see what the world after the destruction looks like, but what we do see in the final moments is the destruction outside the house in the form of violent wailing winds, as well as the group huddled inside the barricaded doors and windows, not really sure what to expect, and by turns apprehensive and resigned to the end of the world. And of course, the ever-present sundial appears in this final calamitous paragraphs, right at the centre of the storm. I don't really want to reveal too much about the very last bit because it'll take the sting out of the final pages, but I will say that I enjoyed reading and rereading The Sundial and I thoroughly recommend it. You know, it's it's a 1950s novel, so it's a sensible length. It's neatly paced and it's funny and absurd. And at the same time, it has a lot of the menacing liminal attributes that I like in fantasy horror. And there's a lot to unpack about the novel. So I'm going to move on to the remarks and talk about role-playing as well. The first major heading I wrote down is boundaries. Now, we're reminded several times that the Halloran estate is a self-contained world. It was conceived as a sort of microcosm full of beautiful things. Early on in the novel, there's the scene where Aunt Fanny gets lost on the estate and then has the vision of her father. But though she's still lost, she instinctively knows that she's still on the estate and that the boundaries are some distance away. There are a few other references to going outside the estate, for example, down to the village, and this serves to illustrate the division between the inside and outside of the estate. But then there's also Julia's nightmare taxi ride where she gets as far as the ring of fog that separates the nearby countryside from the city and gets no further. And what's important is certain types of scene happen in different places. Um, a lot of the conversations happen in the house, you know, the weird encounters and the exploration of the estate and so forth. Interacting with normal people happens briefly in the village, and beyond both the estate and the village, you have this like spooky, dangerous place of weird fog and leering taxi drivers. More importantly, though, there are no appeals to authority above the matriarch Oriana. There's no investigation around Lionel's death. There's no talk of contacting the authorities at any time. There's no one external to their situation who can come in and exert an influence. And the characters have no ability to get to civilization. And this is a staple of horror and mystery one-shots, you know, to isolate the party and make it clear that they're on their own. That's pretty easy to do in a scenario. The harder thing is the way that Oriana manipulates the various characters to stay, and the methods in the book probably wouldn't work in a game. In fact, PCs would probably leave out of curiosity, if anything. So then, if you're going to use social levers to keep the characters in the play area, it will probably work better when you have LARP pregens with some reason to stay connected with their backstory. You know, maybe they're hiding from the law, or maybe they can't afford to lose their position without references and so on. Of course, in a LARP, you want to keep the characters inside the play area anyway. And thinking more about LARP, it's not a bunch of investigators from outside who are now trapped inside. All the characters in the book are insiders already and are invested in staying there. 
so it's much more like a LARP where all the characters start as insiders and yes I think they're all insiders even Mrs Willow and her daughters are there because they've been invited by Oriana and they're at the estate because they have a vested interest i.e the Hilorian fortune that Oriana now controls. Thinking a bit more about the classes of people there are the family members including Oriana, Aunt Fanny, Fancy and so on and then there are employees in Essex and Miss Ogilvy, and finally there's the guests, the various people the group have acquired. And some of these are there because Oriana now wants to show off the fact that she's the master of the house and so can invite whom she likes. Others, like Gloria, have wandered into frame, and, and the third class of people are those who are potentially useful after the storm, uh, i.e. Harry. However, this doesn't really constitute a hierarchy, I and mean, even Oriana, who thinks she's above everyone else, has less control over the others, who are fairly free to travel in a limited capacity. You know, she's put out that some of them take one of the cars from the garage to go to the village, but it's clear she can't really do anything about it. Her only real power is keeping people in the estate. So it's this very flat structure, which is, again, ideal for a role-playing game. Now, the final detail I want to note is the use of oracles to foreshadow and also to pace the novel. And I think these weird encounters fall into two types. One is investigative. And I put in this category the initial hook where Fanny receives her father's message and a vision right at the start, as well as the later episodes where Gloria looks into the future via the mirror. And these give actual information about the future and arguably the cast has some control over them. The other kind of weird encounter is the sort that keeps everyone on edge, and that includes the snake in the fire, the Julia's nightmare taxi ride into the fog, the visit from the true believers, the doll on the sundial stuck with pins. You know, mostly these are designed to be reacted to and keep everyone on edge, and they don't give any useful information. Uh, and I, can't, I found myself thinking in Apocalypse World terms, so that in, in that the first category is kind of like the open your brain move where you're deliberately engaging with the psychic landscape to potentially get information but the second is more like an mc move in response to a character action or inaction but together these are actually a really handy pacing mechanism throughout the book that whenever things seem just a bit too ordinary and relaxed then you can inject something new and weird now I've talked about pacing, I want to move on to the game that I think would fit very well with this scenario. That game is Witch, The Road to Lindisfarne. And I've mentioned Witch a couple of times in the podcast, but I've only just recently, this year, played it as written. Um, previously I've played a Firefly hack and considered how it could be hacked for other games, which is what I'm kind of going to talk about now. You know, which is very much a UK thing, and I expect long-term fans from the UK indie con circuit will know it well, but I don't think it really gets talked about enough. There's a, an episode of the Across the Table podcast wh who covered it in depth, uh, and I'll link that in the show notes. But just to summarise, this is Witch's format. So you have a bunch of pre-gen characters, and they're defined by a few keywords and some questions. And these questions prompt potential topics of conversation, but they're really just things to meditate on. And it's very, very open and freeform, and there is a, a fruitful void there that the players are invited to fill. There are four to six players, and the characters that are selected for which depend on the number of players that you have in the group. 
Scenes are framed by each character going around the table in a clockwise or anti-clockwise order. And the witch is this special character who is the last to introduce themselves right at the end of the game. And they secretly decide at the start whether they are innocent or guilty. There's also a set act structure. Um, each act has a tone. Each act has uh, a particular location because you're traveling on a journey to Lindisfarne. And um, there's no deviating from the path. Also, Eloise the witch has to arrive at Lindisfarne caged and alive. So during the scenes, she can escape and she can also be attacked, but she has to be recaptured and she can't be killed. So there is a return to a centre that has to happen at the end of each scene, or at least at the end of each act, I think. So then thinking about this, yeah, I've got some remarks for hacking purposes to turn this structure to the sundial. First of all, and this is really sort of a feature of this gemless indie freeform game. The players all consent to be bound by the parameters of the journey and the scene structure. And you can translate this for the sundial into bound by the confines of the estate, which is to say that they always have to return to the estate at the end of each scene, or at least each act. Now, the second point, of course, is there's going to be a set order of acts. The first act would be the revelation that the world is about to end. And this should be very specifically around the maiden aunt who is prone to either hysteria or is an actual psychic oracle. And this is set against the backdrop of the funeral of the former master after an apparent coup by the matriarch. The last act will be the orgy before the end of the world, followed by a denouement where the characters huddle during the storm and then enter a brave new world the next day. And in between these, there should be other acts, which might be, you know, illustrating the relationship with the village, the fortification of the house, the attempts for one or more characters to leave the cult, and any attempts at divination. And they can be paced by various apocalyptic visions and revelations. I mean, one of the things that Witch does is it has set pieces that you actually read out. So these can just be things that happen um, as framing the acts as a whole. They don't need to be injected. There's also a yes-no question at the start, which will be answered at the end, but only after the final decision has been taken by the characters about how they're participating. And the obvious question is whether the aunt's vision was real, or if everyone has been suffering from a kind of mass hypnosis. And then during the fourth act, all the characters should decide whether to remain inside the house or leave. And the party is held together by the questions around each of the characters. So most of the characters have a question that ties them to at least one other character. And the questions are pretty broad, but they should provoke scenes around the character's shared backstory, including uh, who loves or has loved whom, who thinks caused the death of the previous master, you know, and other talking points. And as for scene framing and location, we do have a huge estate to explore, and the estate itself needs to be expressed through some collaborative world building. The scene prompts in which are written per character, so at least some of these prompts for each character should be around specific places in the estate, you know, specific to that character, and they use the, the landscape to actually tell each player something more about what their character is or the direct direction they're going. So I've started drafting this up and uh, with a working title of The Huller and Witches, and I'm going to stick it on the blog, and maybe in the future I'll stick it on itch or something. So that's the role-playing bit. So I just want to move on to the last section, which will be further reading, references, and so on. 
I can't think of too many novels where the end of the world is a certainty. But I did actually cover this subject in a previous episode. That's episode 4.03, before I went for slightly more conventional numbering. Um, and I cut in that, I covered uh, The Last Policeman trilogy by Ben Winters, The Three-Body Problem by Shazin Liu, and the BBC series Hard Sun. Um, and the, the TLDR of that episode is basically, you know the world's going to end. How people respond to that will depend on how much time they have. And in The Last Policeman, it's months. And in Hard Sun, which is a BBC series by Neil Cross, didn't really think much of it, to be honest. Um, it, it's years in Hard Sun. Um, and the three-body problem, it's generations. It's like 450 years. Now, granted, that's actually an alien invasion rather than the end of the world per se. Um, but both The Last Policeman and Hard Sun had the apocalypse happening soon. And this drives all sorts of cult behaviour. And the difference, though, is that everyone knows the end is coming, although in Hard Sun, the authorities try to suppress the knowledge to avoid riots. So I do recommend The Last Policeman trilogy. It's um, it's really pretty good um, and a nice page turner. The other thing that this put me in mind is um, On the Flip Side by Nicholas Fisk, which is you know, more obscure, probably harder to get a hold of. I adored Nicholas Fisk when I was a kid, and um, I think uh, some of his novels are amazingly inventive and they have exactly that sort of tea time uh, TV folk horror type feel to them. Now, on the flip side is another apocalypse story where the family is living through the end times with uh, plagues of rats and, and other such events. I think like that this is also about aliens and they appear through the raster patterns of televisions. It's not really aged very well, that obviously, but... I suppose if cassettes are back in fashion, then CRTs might become a thing again. Um, but anyway, this apocalypse is survived by the protagonist's relationship to her cat, and she learns that the cat community is well aware of the end and plans to leave Earth for another dimension, which is actually where the family go at the end. Now, as for rambling estates with their own boundaries, I should also reread Gormenghast, but that's for another time. But I would note that I've talked quite a lot about the boundaries between things, particularly on the Department V blog in reference to Flatland Games Beyond the Wall. Now, that was mainly to do with the area outside the village being unknown and dangerous, and how that danger might enter the village. Oh, and also, speaking of Beyond the Wall, Flatland Games have released finally Through Sunken Lands and other stories, which is the Moorcock, Lieber and Howard version of Beyond the Wall, which was something they teased during the interview with John Cocky and Peter Williams back in 2017. So, just thought I'd slip that in there. Uh, it's bound to be awesome. But anyway, I think that is it for this episode, and thank you for listening, and here's hoping that 2021 is a bit less... Uh, well, less 2020. Happy New Year. Everyone take care. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabreski. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Take care. Bye.